Welcome to the third episode of the Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of the Forensic Psychiatry Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and the McMaster University Division of Forensic Psychiatry, in collaboration with the Multimedia and Entertainment Department at Mohawk College. Today, we have a conversation with Brian Rose, keynote speaker from the 2019 Risk and Recovery Conference on Forensic Recovery. Brian's road to wellness and mental health advocacy began with tragedy. At the height of his mental illness, Brian, who was coping with the symptoms of schizophrenia by abusing drugs and alcohol, couldn't get the help he needed. His life continued in a downward spiral, eventually leading to the tragic death of his grandmother. After being found not criminally responsible, Brian began rebuilding his life in honor of his grandmother. The right combination of medication and treatment served as the foundation of his recovery. He quickly became a model patient who was actively engaged in his own recovery as well as the recovery of his peers. Brian now has the tools to manage his mental health and is poised to make the most of his second chance at life. As an advocate, he shares his story of tragedy and recovery to raise awareness about serious mental illness and to honor his grandmother's memory. Brian is now a peer support specialist for Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences, helping assist patients transition to the community. Our host today is Brandon Sunstrom, Knowledge Translation Specialist. Hi, Brian. Uh, thank you for being here. Welcome to the Hitting the Hammer podcast. Nice. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so you are in the system, uh, in the forensic system, being treated by forensic clinicians. Uh, what's it like to now talk to them about recovery? I think it's very important to talk about recovery. Um, that's how we keep patients out in the community and how we keep people healthy. Um, I teach uh, patients now wellness tools to stay out in the community and stay strong. Um, some of the things that were in my plan of care was uh, staying away from drugs and alcohol, which I always talk about, um, staying on my antipsychotic medications. And the third thing was to manage my stress levels and uh, use my wellness tools. I think it's uh, really important for patients to use that, especially with mental illness or any kind of illness at all. It's always good to stay healthy. I guess, I guess my question is, um, there's no real definition for it, but what is recovery um, to you? Recovery to me is, I think, happiness and to just be content with life and live a good quality of life. That's recovery to me. Yeah, there's so many different responses you get from people, right? It, I don't think there's one definite meaning of it. I think it, it's specific to the person. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, recovery is personalized and every situation is different. I look um, at a client I had in my guitar group and I thought, okay, I got to teach her 12 chords in the semester or else I'm not doing my job. She learned one chord the whole semester, but she loved the course. And that changed my view on recovery. I was like, she recovered because she was happy and she really had a great time at that at, at my guitar class. And it's highly personalized, like I said earlier. And I think um, people just getting out of bed and having a shower is recovery to some people. Um, I know early in my uh, recovery, just shaving or doing small things was recovery. And recovery can be measured differently for everybody. So I know this conference was your first time being a keynote speaker. Uh, how, how, how do you, how was your overall experience here? I loved it. It was uh, a bit nerve wracking going up there, but um, 
and leading up to it, I maybe had a little bit of anxiety for about seven hours, but (laughs) (laughs) it was a really good experience. I loved it. I I couldn't believe I got a standing ovation. I was, I almost cried because the response, I I was blown away. It was one of the best experiences of my life. And, um, it was great just telling the longer version of my story because I can open up about my family more, my grandmother and my grandfather and my mother and talk about everything, the uh, trauma from um, tragedy to recovery. And I think the best part of my story is the recovery. Yeah, you know, um, my favorite part is you give other people hope. Uh, you know, um, you had a tough situation and, and you've come out of it with, with hope and I, I, I thought that was the best part of it, um, that anyone can get through. Yeah, for me, hope was all I had at some points. There was many times I thought about taking my life and in my life, and uh, and I pushed through, and there was a glimmer of hope at times, even when I was incarcerated in the correction system. I thought about suicide, and my mom kept me going every day, and she was a glimmer of hope I had. And then as time went on, the glimmer of hope got brighter and brighter. And now I'm happy with my life and things are going really well. So, so let's go to that. You were incarcerated and then um, eventually uh, transferred to a hospital. But that time period before you were transferred to the hospital, was it too long or were you receiving the services you needed uh, while you were incarcerated waiting for hospital? I was not receiving uh the treatment I needed. I wasn't getting any psychotherapy or anything like that. I was um, on the proper, or I was on medication, but I'm not sure if it was the proper one, but it helped me get out of psychosis. I think the first six months I needed to be there. And then after that, it was, I just got caught up in the partying scene in jail. And I just uh, was spiraling, spiraling down. And, um, it was a tough situation to be in. I just, I, I had very little hope and to come out of that on the other side and to give back is, makes my life so meaningful and gives me purpose. Yeah, I, I wish they could um, find a way to um, have services accessible more readily to people in, in, incarcerated. Um, I just feel like it doesn't, doesn't help people being in a, an environment like that while you're ill. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I don't. I don't remember a social worker or a psychologist. Or I just remember a psychiatrist would give me my meds and he'd prescribe them, and then I wouldn't see him for six months. And it was, it was a different system. And for me, I was on a 72-hour assessment before the tragedy happened, and that's the part of my story where sometimes I wish I got that early intervention and the early treatment to help prevent tragedy. But now I share my story so that the next Brian can be helped before something happens, possibly. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, I, I feel like if if services were, um, like, a lot of a lot of patients in forensics uh, have been in touch with with a psychiatric service before their index offense. Um, so that just tells me that we're we're not we're not providing the right service at those times or what do you think we're missing here? Like how come we're not, how come we're letting people get um, sicker with their illnesses instead of um, trying to help people when they reach out for help the first time? Yeah, I call that falling through the cracks of the system. Um, They do, 
I needed help and people do need help in the beginning. Um, they need to get on medication right away and be helped out. Um, it's tough when, when somebody gets to that point where a life is lost. Um, I look at things like the recidivism rate for forensic mental health and it's quite low and um, for people with an NCR adjudication. So I, I think that's because a lot of people didn't get the help and then once they got the help, then they're good. But it, it, it took getting there to, um, and it's, it's kind of a backward system, I feel like, because... They only treat you uh, when you're in crisis. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, you get help after the fact. Like the forensic system has so many supports in place and so many psychologists, uh, so many healthcare professionals that are willing to work with you. But in the beginning, why aren't they there? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I think that we need to improve uh, the services, um, early intervention for sure. And the wait list uh, on top of that, um, sometimes to see a psychiatrist is up to six months to a year. I waited at my new psychiatrist, I just got um, one year to see him, to transfer. From, but I had a psychiatrist, mm -hmm. but it took me one year to get a new one. And it's like that wait time just seems a long time to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how long were you a forensics uh, patient? How long were you in the ORB? I was a client for um, eight years. So during that time... Um, what would you have changed about your forensic experience? What would you have added, deleted, increased, cut? What, what would you have changed? I think what I'd change is giving the opportunity for patients to be in control of their own destiny, their own like plan of care. Um, I think when you empower people, they have a better chance of recovering. I think if we had more services sometimes in some areas, more things to do, I find that boredom is one of the triggers, which causes relapse and many things, fights and all sorts of stuff in the forensic system. But to help alleviate that boredom, I think is one thing I would change. Um, sports and rec therapy is always good. I have a lot of rec therapist friends and that's always been a a go-to for me, uh, music. Um, at Ontario Shores, we just opened a music room and for people to record, and there's a drum set and guitars, and that's just to um, alleviate some of that boredom and keep people busy. When I was in the forensic system, there was a, a large population of people using um, synthetic marijuana and things like that. Um, I think security could have been better, and not letting these drug dealers onto the hospital grounds, but it seemed a little out of control at times and patients were getting sick and more psychotic and it was hard for me to manage with my history of addiction, but I did the best I could and I, I stayed sober. Um, now six years sober, but it, it was uh, early in my sobriety, first few years, it was really hard when people were using all sorts of drugs and alcohol and hand sanitizer or whatever they could get their hands on. It was, a, it was a tough system for that. And it's, it's open visits, so people could easily pass off drugs or whatever they wanted at the visits. So it made it increasingly harder to s stay sober, but I managed just keeping my grandmother's memory alive and the positive choices I would make. Well, yeah, I, I feel like that too. I feel like that's an issue around all our hospitals. I feel like some sometimes the addiction um, doesn't let the individual kind of 
have an access to recover, it's probably the, one of the toughest things to deal with, for sure. It makes you so ill, especially hallucinogens when you have schizophrenia or any mental illness. If it just intensifies things. I've seen people get right out of control from being just high on marijuana. They just say, oh, it's just marijuana. But if you have a diagnosis of any mental illness, it just heightens your, your symptoms. I've seen people come so aggressive just from smoking marijuana when they have bipolar, schizophrenia, or any mental illness. You are listening to the third episode of the Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton in collaboration with Mohawk College. Okay, so now yeah, you've received your uh, absolute discharge. Um, off you go. You you got employed uh, yes, right off the uh, bat. A month after I got my absolute at Ontario Shores. Ontario Shores. As a what did you get employed as? I'm a peer support specialist in transitional discharge. So what I do is I help people when they are returning in the community. I work with with them two weeks before they go into the community and 10 weeks when they're in community. And then after the 10 weeks, I move on to the next client. There's two roles at Ontario Shores for peer support now. The role is quite ambiguous um, with peer support doing anything from one-to-ones and things like that. But the only way you can access peer support now is through the Recovery College program, which is a peer-run program, like guitar groups, cooking groups, self-help groups, um, and also transitional discharge which i do how does it feel going from patient to staff or um do the patients uh, react to you differently because you have been through what they're going through i find that yes patients will open up to me one of the things i usually say to them i once lived here and when i say that to them they open right up the guard comes down and i help them with things like i say i'm on an injection and they say oh really and i say yeah like i'm still on medication for schizophrenia and when they hear that they they sometimes start taking their meds and i've helped a few clients throughout the whole year i've been there and uh, just staying on their medication from Abilify to Clozapine, it's, it's, it, the medication does help. For me, it was a game changer. I used to have audio hallucinations and visual hallucinations, and just being on my antipsychotic medication has helped me a lot. And I've seen it working with clients coming in very ill, and then they get better with the medication and sobriety and managing stress. So I just want to say your story this week, uh, how you shared it with us, uh, with the 250 people in the audience, um, it was such an invaluable experience uh, to me and to others, as you saw. And uh, I can't thank you enough for um, coming to the conference, um, assisting with things, talking with us in the podcast. So I, I can't thank you enough for um, being on the Hitting the Hammer podcast. Uh, it'll be on our, this will be our third episode. So um, I just really appreciate everything you did for this week. And it's been a pleasure to meet you. Thanks, Brandon. You have listened to the Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and the Forensic Psychiatry Division of McMaster University in collaboration with Mohawk College. The co-editors are Sebastian Pratt and Gary Shamovitz. The production manager is Brandon Sundstrom. The production editing team is Corey Davies and Tom McKay from the Mohawk College Multimedia and Entertainment Department. 
You can also visit the website of our journal's partner, the International Journal of Risk and Recovery at mullpress.mcmaster.ca slash IJRR. Journal published in collaboration with McMaster University Library Press. I'm Corey Davies. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time on Hitting the Hammer.